I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Gretchen Geibel. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018. Coming up, an interview with Mark Beckoff, ethologist and writer on animal consciousness, welfare, and play. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Learn what fossils can tell us about the lives and habits of ancient worlds with James Hakala, senior educator at the CU Museum of Natural History. This Sunday, July 8th at 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. in the museum's Bio Lounge at 1035 Broadway in Boulder on the CU campus. My genome has remnants of Neanderthal DNA acquired by a remote ancestor of mine in Northern Europe some 100,000 years ago. So naturally, I'm curious about my now extinct hominid cousins. A lot of archaeologists and geneticists share this curiosity, and we're learning more about the Neanderthals every year. A new report published last week in the journal Nature, Ecology and Evolution, describes marks on two deer skeletons that illustrate how Neanderthals hunted. The scientists were excavating lakeshore deposits in Germany, a site with numerous Neanderthal remains. They dug up the deer skeletons and found suspicious holes in them. In one, the animal was killed by an 11 millimeter, that's a little over half an inch, circular wound at the top of its pelvis, right next to its spine. The oldest hunting weapons known from the archaeological record are 300 to 400,000 year old sharpened wooden staves. These may have been used as throwing and or close range thrusting spears, but data on their actual use are lacking. Archaeologists have found Neanderthal spears in both the UK and Germany, but still they weren't sure how they were used. Were they thrown from long distances or did they chase down the animals and stab them at close range? The current study is the first to describe a wound caused by a spear. The research team made detailed studies of the damaged bones, including CAT scans and ballistic experiments. The results demonstrated that the injuries could only have been made at close range from a spear thrust. Modern hunters who take game like this typically work together to bring down their prey. So Neanderthals may have cooperated to take down theirs, adding to the list of complex social behaviors our extinct cousins engaged in. Imagine if you lived in a three-bedroom house but could only see two rooms. You've been looking for that third room for 20 years. Sure, it was there, but you just couldn't find it. Well. That's the situation for astronomers as they search for all the matter that makes up the universe. This is different from dark matter and dark energy, which are still mysteries. But instead, astronomers have been trying to account for all the normal matter that was created in the Big Bang. This normal matter is the protons and neutrons, called baryons, that are in the atoms that are in us, the Earth, and everything we see. But astronomers previously detected about 70% of the baryons they predict should be in the universe, and have spent the past couple of decades trying to find the other 30%. This is called the missing baryon problem. Now, in a paper published recently in the journal Nature, astronomers report that using the Hubble Space Telescope and the European Space Agency's X-ray Multi-Mirror Mission Satellite, 
they finally found the elusive signature of that missing matter. But where is it? It's in the form of highly ionized atoms of oxygen gas in the vast spaces between galaxies at temperatures of about 1 million degrees Celsius. The observations measured the atoms to have a high enough density, when extrapolated to the entire universe, to account for that last missing 30% of ordinary matter. Boulder astronomers Michael Schull and Charles Stansforth from the University of Colorado are co-authors on the paper. Dr. Scholl described the importance of this discovery as one of the key pillars of testing the Big Bang Theory, figuring out the baryon census of hydrogen and helium and everything else in the periodic table. Dr. Mark Beckoff, Professor Emeritus from CU Boulder, has recently published a new book with the wonderful title of Canine Confidential. If you enjoy dogs, dog parks, and watching them interact with each other and people, you'll enjoy this book. Welcome to the show, Mark, and thanks for coming by the studio this morning. It's my pleasure to be here, but I'd rather be at the dog park. <laughs> well, we'll <laughs> let you go soon, and you can go collect some more data, which is something you encourage people to do in your book. So. That's actually at the very end of the book, but let's just jump ahead and go to the end and tell us about your opportunities interacting with people instead of dogs at the dog parks and getting them to be citizen scientists. Yeah, well, um, dog parks are a wonderful place to go to watch dogs, play with dogs, or interact with dogs, and dogs interact with people, and people interact with people. So I was actually surprised when I started spending far too many hours at different dog parks, not only in Boulder, but in other places, to see the dynamics of these canine-human interactions. But one of the things that comes out of them is the importance of citizen science, because one of the messages in the book is that we know a lot about dogs, but there's also a lot we don't know. And the other is that dogs have very unique personalities. So to talk about the dog is really quite misleading. So I just spent a lot of time, and people would say, you get paid to do this. And, <laughs> well, yes, but you know, people get paid to do a lot of funky things in science. Um, and so the data from my observations at dog parks played some role in my book, and so did the citizen scientists. And I'm really into citizen science for a lot of different sciences, not only just dog watching. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for everyone that's interested in science, but especially behavior, because you can just get out there with your eyes and make observations, maybe keep track of them, but it's fun. Watching dogs is fun. <laughs> it's really inexpensive, too, which is what I like. And, and I had a project with an eighth grader at the time, Alexandra Weber, who wrote to me. She was at school, middle school in Boulder and, and said she wanted to study play behavior in dogs, but everything had been studied. And then she, I remember she asked me a question of whether familiar dogs play differently from unfamiliar dogs, and believe it or not, no one ever studied it. So as part of her science fair project, she used her iPhone, because kids are addicted to those, which is great. She took on her mother and her sister as her field assistants, and went and filmed dogs, and actually produced data that won her an award at the science fair, and really if she had more time, we would have really had a publishable paper. So there it was, iPhone. I taught her how to analyze videos. 
and there and there it was and then her dad who you know had never really been i mean he liked dogs he told me but he really got into dog behavior so citizen science can be contagious. I'm really glad you raised that story of the Science Fair Project because that was one of the highlights of the book to me, that this young woman contacted you and she came out of it with this great exposure to science and got some data and an award on the Science Fair Project. And you detail a lot of stories like that where people approach you and come up with some novel form of data. It's a pretty cool idea that there's all kinds of unknowns out there just waiting to be explored. Yeah, I mean, the reason I wrote the book, and I've been really writing it for many years on end, is because I bring a scientific perspective to it. I'm an ethologist, and I did long-term field work on coyotes living outside of Jackson, Wyoming, and penguins in Antarctica. And so a lot of dog books people are surprised to learn are written by people who have never really studied dogs. They live with a dog, which is fine. I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but they don't really bring a broad, say, evolutionary and ecological perspective to their work. So based on my experience of studying wild coyotes and wolves and other animals, I can bring that into watching dogs because dogs are mammals and they've evolved. I mean, they're domesticated animals, but they've really evolved in different ways. And it's really fun to go watch them and also teach people how to do it. When I taught my courses in animal behavior at CU, every student had to do a, an animal, an original project. So people watched dogs at dog parks. We did some studies of free-ranging dogs up around Nederland and Rollinsville. Um, and they really appreciate it. And the, the bottom line for all this is that it improves the relationship people have with their dogs when they understand and appreciate them as the um, individuals who they are. So before we go on, because there's lots of stuff to move on to, could you define ethology for our listeners that aren't familiar with the term? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> ethology is the study of animal behavior from more of an evolutionary and ecological point of view. So um, some of the questions that I'm interested in would be why did different behavior patterns evolve? Why are, they re why are they retained in the repertoire of an animal? And the ecological aspects, like when we studied coyotes, coyotes who lived as, you know, few a kilometer or two apart showed distinct differences in their social organization. And that's in contrast to comparative psychologists who study behavior, but they tend to focus on captive animals and they tend to focus on little rodents like rats and mice. And while they're interesting, they're hardly representative of other mammals because they're so highly inbred and they live in tiny little cages. Yeah, unlike dogs, especially free-roaming dogs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on in the mountains right outside, outside of Boulder with these free-ranging dogs. Yeah. yeah, And this book is, despite what we're saying about um, talking about it in kind of a low-key way, this is actually fairly scholarly in a lot of its aspects. And one of the, um, the sort of abstract ideas that you introduced that I really enjoyed was that of the theory of mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? What about dog minds and, yeah. and minding dogs? And minding dogs. Well, <coughs> dog minds are extremely active. You know, they're very smart. They're very emotional beings. And they're very clever. And so 
what we're learning, I mean, it's amazing how much we're learning every day. I mean, it seems like, you know, at least two to three times a week I get some notice over email of a new study. And one of the things that people are interested in is, you know, not why, not do dogs think, although there's still some people out there who wonder whether non-human animals think, but, but they're, they, they're with the Neanderthals who hunted cooperatively. <laughs> um, but the question is, why have certain patterns of behavior evolved, not if they have evolved? That would be the ethological point of view. So theory of mind basically just um, states that individuals know what other individuals are thinking and what they're feeling. And when you look at social animals such as dogs or wolves or other social beings, even birds, it's hard to believe that patterns of social behavior would evolve without them having some knowledge of what other animals are thinking and what they're feeling. So that's a theory of mind. And one of the best ways to look at it is in play behavior. So I've studied play behavior in dogs and coyotes and wolves for years. And when two animals play, they have to agree to play because they will bite one another. They'll bite and head shake, you know, really vigorously. They'll mount them as if they're trying to reproduce with them, reproduce them with them, or they'll jump on them and bite them as if they're preying on them. So the animals have to agree that this is play, not fighting or mating or you know, um, predation. And part of the way that animals play fairly is they know what the other animal wants to do and is expecting to do, and that would be the elements of a, a theory of mind, certain rules. And it turns out one of the things that I learned, um, we'd been studying it um, at dog parks, is some people go, well, every time there's rough and tumble play, it escalates into fighting. And in fact, it only escalates into real fighting less than 2% of the time. And when I, when I tell people that and then they begin to watch that and study it, they're amazed. And one of the reasons that animals can play fairly is they know what the other animals want, and they're honest about their intentions. And a really interesting point that comes through when you talk about play behavior is that it has a distinct function and it's really valuable to the animals. And I remember when we first started talking about play like 30 to 40 years ago, that one thing we thought was that it was practice for all these life skills that were really important. But now it seems like people think less so of that hypothesis and and think, like, I, my take on one thing you're saying in the book is that play has evolved because it's a valuable end in and of itself. It probably teaches animals a lot about each other. Yeah, one of the things about play <coughs> is that the animals learn to resolve conflicts among one another. And, um, and there's a human application to that is when you look at these very sad cases of a lot of serial killers and even mass killers, um, even these horrific events that have occurred within the last few months, there's been two aspects. The first is that teachers and siblings and parents and their peers report that so-and-so did not know how to play spontaneously, fairly, and interactively. And the other was that um, a large percentage of these people have histories of animal abuse. So in terms of the evolution of play, it seems like it serves a number of purposes. One is socialization. The other is physical development. 
it's called like the physical training response for the development of bones, tendons, and muscles and joints, for example. And the other is cognitive development. And what you'll see in dogs is that if they haven't had the proper socialization with other dogs and with humans, um, between around four and eight weeks of age, it's it's often an uphill battle to socialize them to, um, say, members of different species with whom they haven't had contact. So play is an amazing um, fertile ground for learning about socialization, learning about cognition, and learning about their very deep emotions. If you are just tuning in, this is the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth, and I'm speaking with Mark Beckoff about his book, Canine Confidential. So, Mark, it sounds like we should all play more. Oh, yes. <laughs> we, should, we should definitely play more. But, but it is interesting that, you know, among a lot of um, non-humans in the wild, play, it doesn't drop out of adult repertoires. But in the wild, you know, life's tough. And play is a luxury. And when animals are stressed, either as individuals or a group, play seems to be the first um, set of behavior patterns that drops out of their repertoire. The thing with dogs, of course, is they're taken care of. I mean, not all are, but a lot of them are. So really, they have all the time in the world to play. But one of the things that's really important is that a lot of um, they'll break the ice with strangers by playing. Um, Humans are just too inhibited to play. You know, you can't, you can't roll on the ground and wrestle because of this reason, and you can't just push somebody jokingly um, because of that reason. And things have gotten worse over the last 15 or 20 years because when I, I taught at CU, I did some studies um, with the students using them as confederates of different ways in which they would try to get strangers to play. So you'd have males approach females, females approach males, males and uh, females and females. And it was a great study. We got a lot of stuff there. But actually, there was a complaint, and I was told that we can't do those mm. studies anymore mm -hmm. and how silly that was. Yeah, but, you know, sad. that's just the way it goes. Yeah. 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 Well, there's an interesting series of experiments that you talk about a little bit in your book where dogs were put into um, fMRI machines. And... And first of all, that's something we talked about on this program a little bit in the last year. I was amazed that dogs could be trained to lie still in an MRI machine. But what the the researchers, one of the, their findings was that dogs interpret spoken words on each side of their brain, left and right side, much like humans do. And so they interpret the tone of voice or the intonation on one side, and they can interpret the meaning of the words on the other side. And if you're giving a dog praise, they have to have the appropriate words as well as the appropriate tone of voice for their internal reward pathway to be activated. And I thought this was so interesting and it ties into this whole issue of domestication, how we have really evolved with dogs and they have learned our language. And it just makes me so curious, what have we learned from them and how have we adapted to our domestication? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's been really books written about that. Um, yeah, I think because of the last, the long period of um, association between dogs and humans, they almost have some kind of genetic expectation of certain sorts of interactions. And I know people think that's weird, but I spent a lot of time with wild wolves and wild coyotes, and even captive wolves and coyotes, and they don't. You know, one of the mistakes people think, they'll say, well, I have, I'm living with a domesticated wolf, and he or she doesn't do something. 
But the fact is they're not. A domesticated wolf is a dog. They're living with a socialized individual. But getting back to the MRI work, it's fascinating. There's great work being done by um, a guy named Gregory Burns and his colleagues at Emory University and a great project on um, doing MRIs on dogs in, in Budapest at the at Tavos uh, University. And what's really exciting is there's a lot of skeptics out there, so they'll say, well, behavioral data or observational data in and of themselves are not really compelling. They're interesting. So there was just a study published about within the last month by Greg Burns and his group that showed that when dogs are in a situation when you assume they're feeling jealous, the same parts of the brain light up as they do in humans. And so it's the non-invasive research. These dogs who go into the MRIs can choose to go in or not. I've seen these. They're not stressed. And it's wonderful because I think the most compelling data are going to come out when people see that the same parts of the human brain and dog brain, for example, light up during different emotional states. And, of course, it would span other species. So what I really like about that research is, number one, it's non-invasive, so they're not torturing dogs or other animals, you know, in captivity. And the other is that we're looking at um, homologous, homologous parts of the brain lighting up. So the pretty compelling data. Exactly, yeah. And as an evolutionary biologist, it, to me it's a no-brainer that our brains did not, no-brainer, <laughs> did not arise de novo. We share this evolutionary trajectory with other mammals and share different parts of the brain that have analogous and homologous functions. And I think it's a great way, especially with domesticated dogs, since we co-evolved together to look at brain regions and brain functions that share some of the emotions that we know that we have with these animals because emotions are such a big part of our lives and we're, we're learning more and more about how they influence so much of our behavior. Yeah, and that really falls in with Charles Darwin's ideas about evolutionary continuity. So um, Darwin basically argued that differences among species are differences in degree rather than kind. They're quantitative rather than qualitative differences, shades of gray, if you will. So, you know, an easy bumper sticker is if we have something, they, other animals, have it as well. Of course, we do amazing things that other animals don't or can't do, but so do they. So really what this is all boiling down to, and I hope, for me, the bottom line is that all these data are going to improve the human-dog relationship and that people will understand that dogs aren't machines. I mean, there's very few people out there who do, but every now and again you come across a scientist who's just pre-Descartes. You know, (laughs) all these data are there, and they go, well... We don't really know that dogs think. We don't really know that they feel. And there was a couple of books written a few years ago that were horrible by somebody who supposedly studied dogs, basically arguing that they're basically machines. And not only is that horrible science, but it has horrible overtones for the way in which we should be interacting with dogs and other animals. Yeah, I think it's amazing when I hear stories like that, especially in light of what you just said about Darwin. Darwin, you know, 150 years ago, came to some of the same insights that we're seeing now, and then it's like backlash against that. Well, some people go, oh, well, that was back then. But right, right. There were very few 
keen observers. Another thing, of course, that comes out of the study of dogs is I always say to people, would you do it to a dog? So when, you know, they're talking about the horrible abuse of um, animals on factory farms or in laboratories or in other venues, you just say, you know, well, would you do it to a dog? Would you allow your dog to spend a day on a factory farm? Would you allow your dog to spend one night in a laboratory? And they'll go, no. Um, would you kill your dog for fun? And people go, well, why are you asking that? Well, because people go out and kill other animals, mammals, sentient beings for fun. So the question, would you do it to your dog, brings it home. And I'm not posing it in a in a really nasty way. But it actually facilitates um, great discussion, and it really is great with kids. It, mm-hmm. it really works. Mm-hmm. Would you do it to your dog? And I go, oh, no. So, right, yeah. right. And, and that's one of the great um, themes to come out of this book, that you can engage people at dog parks around their dogs, since dogs are such an icebreaker between people, and ask these hard questions like that in a relatively non-threatening way. And, and there's so many good stories in the book of interactions, not only between dogs and there's lots of fun stories in the book about that but also interesting interactions between people yes sometimes i would be talking to somebody and you you know i think my goodness am i their therapist (laughs) am i their hairdresser am i their chauffeur Who, who knows and they would start telling me and one woman just freely said to me, and I didn't know her, but for two minutes, she said, you know, I've decided that I really don't like my best friend anymore because she rescued a dog and I don't like how she interacted with a dog. What do you think? And I, it was perfect timing. I think my phone rang and I said, I think I better get my phone because I'm, I'm, I'm not an analyst nor a <laughs> right. um, counselor. Yeah. And speaking of timing, we are out of time. So thank you so much, Mark. That was Mark Beckoff enlightening us about dog play, minds, and behaviors. We will link to his book on our website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conrad. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Florence and the Machine. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven nine nine one one. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Gretchen Geibel. And I'm Beth Bennett.